We're going back to 1 John. I spoke on chapter uh, 3, I think back at right after Christmas and the beginning of, before the beginning of the new year. For those of you who weren't here and for those of you who don't remember, <laughs> which I doubt that's the problem with anybody here today, um, is that we looked at uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 28 to 29, and then, uh, uh, and then chapter 3 through verse 10. And that was uh, the jo- John, the disciple, this, this elderly, saintly man who is writing to a congregation of people that he loves there's uh, some controversy going on here. There's some false teaching, as was uh, rampant in uh, that time and as it is today. John was uh, talking about and talking to the saints, and he was letting them know. He was discipling them, and that's what I really liked about this book. I, this book, to, for me, reminds me of someone who is discipling the flock. And really, that's something that Nate and I have been uh, talking about, if you can hear it in his words. And uh, we pray about it, and we've uh, been talking about, uh, as we look at this year, something even my, my, my assistant pastor uh, letter to the church at the uh, annual meeting talked about the focus and the desire of of intentionally discipling. Now, discipling is done through the preaching of God's Word. It is done in Sunday school classes for all ages. It's done in small groups. But there is there's a, there's a, another level that I believe that uh, I think goes very closely, ties very closely with uh, Matthew 28 as we read that great commission as we did not so long ago about go and make disciples and teaching and baptizing. And um, uh, there's a, an intentionality to that that is, uh, is not always clear. And, and if I were, were to t- ask you the question, tell me how you would disciple someone or go out and disciple, again, I would find a whole bunch of different ways of doing it or different answers. And what I... What I'm hoping that we're, the direction we're going to be going in is this, is um, intentional small groups, one-on-one, just really small, one, two, three, four people gathered together with, with the intention of being discipled so that we would be able to um, actually obey Jesus and to become fishers of people. And that is to replicate that and to replicate that and to replicate that. That is not just that you become converts and that you are now discipled in a, in a one way, way or the other and then you, you, you just take that on your own and now you go live life. Really, what God has called us, we are disciples because we're Christians. And because we're Christians and we're disciples, we are called by God to be disciplers. And so our hope is to be able to uh, get 
all of you excited about that being a part of the vision of the church that is not just short-term, but that is something that's going to take us on f- until the Lord returns. Um, and it's, it's not done intentionally in a lot of churches. Um, I was never discipled, honestly. I was never taken under someone's wing and actually taken down and talked about the doctrines of the faith and what does that mean about my life and how do I apply that and how do I take those doctrines and, and now go out and live in the world and how, did, how, how am I to take these things and prepare me to be the witness that God wants me to be? I've learned it through Bible college. I've learned, I've learned it by being a pastor and sitting down with people. I've learned it by being in seminary. I've learned it by just doing it. But we as a church, and I believe we as disciples of Christ, and Matthew tells us, that this is, a, this is an intentional um, process, not a program, not to go out and buy a program that's going to, you're going to answer questions and then it's over with and you get a certificate and then you go home. But it is something that you look at that you, once you've discipled someone, then you give them the tools to disciple someone and then you take someone else on and disciple them. And I think this is what John is doing, and this is why I, I, I like this letter, because he is reminding them of who they are, reinforcing what they know, reinforcing and reminding them of what they may have forgotten, and giving them this grid, this examination that we need to put ourselves through as John wanted this church or these uh, beloved people to go through. And throughout the book of 1 John, there's a um, uh, John bringing up and presenting three examinations, three kinds of tests that he wants people to go through in their mind. And that's the test of, of the doctrines of the church and the doctrines of Christ. Doctrine is important. Do we understand who Jesus is? Because not everybody does. There are people who sit in church that will give you multiple answers on a question of who Jesus is. And then there's this test of love. And the test of love is the test of how we love one another. Do we love the church? Do we love fellow believers? And then the the other test is the test of obedience. How are we living our lives? Do we live our lives in such a way that brings glory to God, that shows the world, does to proclaim to the world that we are followers of Christ? And as we looked at the chapter 3, it was this test that John gave uh, to them to present to them because what's going on is that there is these, this false teaching. And this false teaching is by a the group, it's not full-blown Gnosticism, but that's what it ends up being later on in history. And to make it real short, this Gnostics believed that they had a higher knowledge or they had a, an elite kind of knowledge from God. And so when he talks about the community of faith and he talks about and emphasizes fellowship, he wants everyone to know that they have fellowship with one another. And we're going to look today at the beginning of this letter and realizing that they have fellowship with the people that really count. 
None of these people who think that they're enlightened by they have this super spiritual knowledge that only a few are given it. So what do you do? You, you look for those that have it and you congregate with them. Now, what John is going to say as we look at this letter through is that he was saying these people used to be in our congregation, but they're gone. And they left because they didn't know who Jesus is. And they also believed that, that Jesus was not God. And he was not fully human. And they believed that when Jesus came, that he was... Uh, it wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't come as God. He, it was this, this, an appearance of, of a man's body. It wasn't really a body because the Gnostics believed that the spiritual world is good and the flesh is evil. So if you have that kind of dichotomy, what happens when we live our lives? It doesn't make a difference what we do with our lives. It doesn't make a difference what we do in the flesh. It doesn't make a difference what we do with our bodies. As long as we're spiritual, we're cool with God. And so John is writing this letter to them because he's very concerned that these people not get taken away and not walk away, but continue to walk in the faith. As we saw in chapter 3, he says, there are, there, Jesus came, he appeared once, he's going to appear again. How do those two appearings, the one that he came, at, he came at his birth and his whole life, how did that affect your life? And knowing that he's coming again, how, how are you preparing for that? How are, what are you doing? Does that make any, take any effect in your life whatsoever? Does that give any challenge to your life? Does that give you any hope? Are you preparing for the coming of Christ? And how are you supposed to do that? And then he says that Jesus came, as he says here, he goes, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And then he says, in summary, he says that you appear as well as something. Jesus appears, now you appear. If you're following Christ, then you appear as a Christian. If you're not following the Lord, then you appear as someone who is not following Christ, but is really following the devil. So how is it that you want the world to see you? And that's why he is talking about being holy, being obedient, or the Bible calls it, or theology, a theological word is sanctification. How are we setting ourselves apart? How, how have we set ourselves apart? Because we are gods. We are the Lord's. We have been set apart by him in the world to live in this world, but not become part of it. So this is where John is coming from, and we're going to look at the beginning of this book. Turn with me to chapter 1. And we're going to find some purpose statements today. There's actually three places here in these verses. We're looking at chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 6. And there's three purpose statements in here as we read them, and I'll point them out for you. But let me pray before I read. Heavenly Father, we ask your guidance and blessing upon us as we gather together to read your word and to hear your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be working in our hearts, working in my life, using the words. Father, that they would hear your words. 
that they would hear your voice. That, Father, if there are those here today that have never heard these words or heard your voice, that, Father, you would call them to be your children. And we ask this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest and revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says, that he, he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And I hope you see some kind of uh, pattern and, and some words that are repeated. And as we go on, I'll pick, I'll pick them out, and hopefully you'll make note of them as we end up walking through this. I think this is the book I'm going to find myself landing in um, for the series of messages I'm going to be giving throughout the year about five or six more times uh, through, the, through the year. And, and uh, notice the very first part here of chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We have a, a, the testimony of the apostles. That, and, and that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. You see there is, this, there is this testimony that the apostles are testifying that what they're talking about Jesus, what they're saying about Jesus is real. 
It's an historical event with a historical person, which really is different than all the religions because it all depends upon Jesus. Take away Jesus, you have no Christianity at all. Others are philosophies. Others are all kinds of religions. But you can take away some of those folks and take away all of them and still have their philosophies and still have their religions but not have the person. But with Jesus, it's key that he existed. And there are people who are no longer with this congregation, not here, but with John's writing to his, his audience that were believers at one time or gave the appearance of being believers and they've walked away from the faith. Notice that very last phrase there, verse 6 of chapter 2. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way. These people have not, no longer walking in, but they've walked away from. They don't care what the apostles say. They don't care what the evidence points to. They believe that this spirit God, whoever it is, has given them this ability to rise above the material and the flesh and the earth and to go to a place that's above, that is beautiful, that is better, that is uh, Gnosis, that is knowledge, that is just something so much more profound than anything we see here. Who cares what's going on around here? Who cares about you? Who cares about the environment? Who cares about anything? It's all about being up there. And that's why John writes in such a way to give assurance to the people. Give assurance to these folks as you're... As you're going to read, as you go through, John says, we know. He says, we know. Now, these people say they know. That's the word Gnostic, meaning gnosis, meaning knowledge. They say they're in the know. John is saying, no, they're not, but we know. John is giving them an identity. He's saying, you are the ones that really know. I know it because you understand, you believe, you embrace what we know as the apostles. And so what do they say? They say, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon this. He was not a ghost. He was not a figment of our imagination. He was someone who was real. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. With our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifest, was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it. Notice how they transmit these words to them. We testify to it. We witness to it. We proclaim it. And in verse 4, he says, we write these things. That which we have seen, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? Why do they do that? So that, that's a purpose clause. That's the purpose, one of the purpose statements. So that, whenever you see so that, there's a reason why there is there. Like therefores, well, so that is, this is the reason why. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ, his Son. 
The apostles are saying, we're the ones who have touched. We're the ones who have walked with Jesus. We're the ones who have been called by Jesus. We're the ones who have been given the revelation from God that you have in your hands that you are reading. Now, John is old. John's one, probably the last survivor of all the disciples, of all the apostles. He's seen and heard that they've been, they've been martyred. They've died for their faith. And John is, is in his 90s. And as he writes this, he's going back and he's telling them, I've seen it, I know. Now, what is that like for you when you can sit back and sit down and talk to somebody who was an eyewitness? You get back, you know, my father was a World War II survivor. I mean, he went through the Battle of the Bulge. He went through Normandy. He went through, he was, you know, he went through so many wars and so many battles in the war that who would you want to talk to about the war, then him. You'd sit there and listen to him. Or if you knew someone who was the, the, the family member of a famous person, you would want to sit and listen to that person talk about that individual because they would have firsthand knowledge. It wasn't secondhand, it's firsthand information. And this is where John is saying that they don't care, but this is important because we know that Jesus existed. We saw him die. J J uh, John and the Peter, they're the ones you read chapter 20 of the book of John. What happens? They walked into the tomb. They saw with their eyes. John peeps in. Peter, the rambunctious one, runs in, and he sees and believes that Jesus is no longer dead, but that he's been resurrected from the dead. These are all eyewitness, and it makes a difference because, folks, there are people out there that you talk to who give grip. They don't even think or care that Jesus ever existed. But for us, it's pivotal. If he did not exist, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Who cares? Let it all hang out. Let it all fly. And this is where these people who have gone are saying they're in the know, and John is saying, no, they're not. And notice he says here that they, in verse, verse 3, that they, you too may have fellowship with us because they have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. And if you want that kind of fellowship, then you need to have fellowship with us. Not because of who they are, but because of who they know and who they've been with, and who they believe. And so that's why he says in verse 4, and we, the apostles, are writing these things so that our joy may be mixed with your joy so that it all will be complete. Because there's some translations that say your joy or our joy. It doesn't make a difference. Their joy is our joy. And when we have fellowship with God through the teaching of the apostles, that's where John says, then we are in fellowship. It isn't that we need to have an, a gnosis that is, that is something that's super spiritual. We know who Jesus is. We have walked with Jesus. We know what he did. We know what he said. We saw him die. We are the people who can testify in a courtroom that this was all real. 
And so he tells them that, and to them, this needs to be important because it did really exist. And there was a man named Jesus, and they do have fellowship with God, and what they wrote carries them through because it is the very word of God. And then he moves on and he says, he talks about, he, got, he has these questions. Notice he says, again, there's three, there's, three, there's three claims, not questions, but claims. Notice in, in verses uh, 6 and 7. He says, if we say we have fellowship, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, if verse 10, if, you, if we say we have not sinned, so John begins this part of the section of, the, of this letter, and he says, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus firsthand, and we give to you, verse 5, that God is light, and there in him there is no darkness at all. There is, there is nothing in God is dark. Jesus tells us that if you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Christ, there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness or turning, shadows of turning in thee, with thee, from great is thy faithfulness. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't have a plan B. Even though at times in our life, we wonder what God is doing in our life, and that's where we have these questions. God, do you really love me? God, do you, are you really watching over me? God, are you listening to my prayers? At that point, we are questioning God's goodness. But we see that God is light, which means that he's pure. And he's also revealed himself to us. He's, his self-disclosure from the beginning of the book to the end of the book it's God revealing himself to us through a progressive way through history, through the word of God, that we see how God has revealed himself as being God the Father, then Jesus coming because he is the fulfillment of everything that God was telling the world to expect. And then when Jesus comes, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And in them is no darkness at all. There are some philosophies, the yin and the yang, right? The two equals competing, that doesn't exist. It may look good in your, and as a tattoo on your body, but it's diddly. It means nothing. It may be cool. It may be cool to wear on your neck. But folks, you're proclaiming something if you have that yin and yang on your body anywhere. On your book covers at school, anywhere. It's telling you that you believe that there is a God who's good and there's evil who is just as powerful. Is that what you proclaim? Is that what you believe? There are those out there that believe that God's in all of this, that God's in everything, in all the trees, and everything bad is just part of the plan. God just puts up with it. Is that what you believe? No, because God is light. God is pure. These people don't care. All they're cared about is their experience. They don't care about knowledge 
that the Bible's teaching or that these apostles are giving them. And there is no, dis- there is no uh, darkness in him at all. You, we, we say this, but I hope we mean it, that God is good all the time. Right? We're, we, we have to force ourselves to say that sometimes, do we not? That God is good all the time. We know that we say that because sometimes in our mind, we're really going in our heads saying, what on earth is he doing? But God's good all the time. It's like a safety valve or a life preserver that you throw on yourself when you really feel like you're sinking somewhere. It's true. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it is. But he's good all the time. That's what he's trying to say. So he goes and he says this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, is that not a contradiction? Are you telling me a lie? And and John has no qualms of calling people liars. He says it's a lie. And you do not practice what you say that you believe in. And then he goes on and he says, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that means holy and pure, we have fellowship with one another. Meaning that if we're walking in the light, then we have fellowship with the apostles because the apostles walking in the light that Jesus gave them. Walking in the scriptures. Thy word is a light. This is what they're living by. The Lord is the light of my salvation. All these things, this is, what, this is what they're relating to. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we do have fellowship with the apostles. It is showing us that we have committed ourselves to a group and a body of faith. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But, he says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, well, if we, we don't, if we don't have sin, then why do we need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus? But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Are you or aren't you? You're wearing this jersey. Do you play for Boston Spa High School or do you play for Saratoga? That's, that's the question. It's very easy. Or do you go in the middle of the court and change jerseys in the middle of the game just to change sides? Can't do that. He says you can't do that here. You can't say that you're a Christian and yet you're living like this. You can't say you're a believer and you're walking like this. Walking means living this life out. It's the walk. He says then, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Notice, if we say we, know, we have no sin, there are people, there are denominations that are out there that completely believe they are totally sanctified and that they don't sin anymore. Wow. I was at a conference once with a denomination that the pastor stood up and said, thank you, Jesus, I've been totally sanctified. And I went, my goodness, where am I? The Bible, uh, 
totally sanctified, without sin? Ask anybody that they ever live with or work with. The evidence is right there. And if you tell somebody that they're sinners, boy, the engine light comes on real quick, doesn't it? Oh, that's not sin when they get angry at you and call you names? That's not sin. I did have somebody I loved who was in that kind of belief, who believed he was totally sanctified, and he just believed he made some bad choices, but he was not a sinner. If we deceive ourselves and we do not sin, which means that's not true, then the reality comes if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That means that we are going to sin. It's not continually walking, as I mentioned in chapter 3. It is not a pattern of our lives that, 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 that uh, we're talking about. I mean, it is about a pattern of our lives that we're talking about. It is not that we, are, that we do sin in our life in day to day. It is a part that we are in a pattern of it and we don't care or we excuse it, or we accept it, or we blink at it. That's what he's talking about here. He is saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we come to our understanding that we, in verse 9, confess our sins, God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. And notice that the next word is just. As we looked at last week, as Pastor Nate talked about Abraham, and Abraham was uh, going through that dialogue, talking to, who, uh, talking to God about, will you save the city of Sodom and Gomorrah for 40, 50, 30, whatever? And he just says, excuse me, but th- the one who is righteous and just will not kill the, the righteous and destroy the righteous. This is justice here as well. Just as we want justice for the wicked and the guilty to be punished, it is the justice of God to reward and to forgive. But we can't, we, it isn't anything that we do that can give us that kind of justice. But because of what Jesus did, then God has to forgive us if we believe in Christ. God has to be because he would be unjust if he did not forgive us. If he did not forgive us, then he would be an unjust God. But because of the justice of Christ, because of the righteousness of Christ, because the blood of Christ purifies us from all of unrighteousness, if we are forgiven because of the work of Christ, then God is just and to forgive us from all of our sins. That's just as much as a justice that we want. We want that justice. That just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, he says. And then verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. Period. End of question end of conversation what else can i i think of uh, how firm a foundation when it says in there what else can i say what else can be said than to you what has been said you can't say anything else if you say you do not sin 
and God says that you are a sinner, then who's the liar? God. This is what, this is what we do, or this is what unbelievers do. If you don't believe in Christ, if you don't believe you're a sinner, then this is what God said. God calls us all a sinner. The wages of, of, de- the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death because of our work against God. The Bible talks from beginning to end about the sin of the human heart and the need for sacrifice and the need for atonement. But if we don't want that, then there's nothing else that can be said. I was in a situation with a, my, and I've mentioned it here when I was here before, is in a probably one of the most difficult church discipline situations I've ever been in where there has been a, 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 a relationship of immorality within the church, between two church members. And how the response was, was exactly what, was, what we see here. The gentleman resigned from everything in the church, left the church, and hid away because of his great embarrassment and how he does not deserve to be called a Christian. He doesn't deserve to be in the church. He doesn't deserve anything in the church at all. The young lady, yeah, but not a big deal. Really. person sang in a choir, looked like she was just in an ozone layer when she used to sing. She was just closing her eyes and just way all over the place. And they were just so in tune and so involved. It was a family from our church, and they've been in the church, grew up in the church, been in everything, just where Bible studies were everywhere. This young lady came to our house so Susie and I could counsel her, and she didn't care. She didn't care what she did. Yeah, it's wrong, but what's the big deal? I said, do you realize you're playing with fire here? Do you realize that you are calling God a liar? Do you realize that you are trampling upon Christ here? Do you want to be, you want to go there? And through the whole process, I withheld communion from her. She could come to church. I withheld communion. I said, we're in a process here. You need to repent or you're going to be cast out. And she sat, she came, didn't take communion, kept on coming to church, came to Bible study, but didn't think it was anything wrong. Came to the meetings that we had with uh, members of the congregation and the leadership of the church and sat there and didn't care. I was heartbroken. Wow, how could somebody even go there? But she did. Didn't even care what happened. So... We, I ex, we excommunicated her. We cast her out of the membership of the church. And then we had to do damage control because then we had people gossiping. And so I went and came to those folks who were gossiping, and I said, oh, don't think that you're getting away from God. I said, don't think that you're getting away scot-free. You start telling stories outside of our family, you've got hell to pay. So the best thing for you to do is keep your mouth shut unless you want the same thing to happen to you. 
Tough love. Who cares? It's got to be done. This is what John is writing to. We need to protect the family of God from unbelief. So this is where he goes on and he says, and he calls in verse 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that, a purpose clause, you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have the paraclete. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. And we've talked about this many times. Propitiation means that God is propitiated. Does that answer your question? (laughs) The answer is that God now is no longer angry. The wrath of God is no longer in the crosshairs on you. It means that God is now made favorable. God is now favorable towards us. Before we were enemies of God, now we are favorable to God. And it's not because of anything that you and I have done, Titus says to us, but it is because the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and his justice and his righteousness that we can now be propitiated for. We are now right with God. The wrath of God is turned away from us. He is our propitiation for our sins and not for our sins, not for only the Jews, but for the entire world. For every race, every ethnicity on the globe, Jesus died for. This is what John is writing to. This is John is telling them. We'll go on later and read these other verses at another time. But what I wanted to establish for you that this is John is making sure that people understand who they are. They understand the basics of the faith. They understand that the basics of the faith then determine how you live your life. That's discipleship. It can be preached here. It can be taught in Sunday school. But where do you go when you need to confess your sins? When you need to look at somebody and to talk to them? When you need God's blessing when you need uh, god's love it is through our hands it is through our feet we are the instruments of god to be able to be that for individuals in our church and in outside the church discipling people john uh turn with me to first thessalonians I was working through this, and I didn't know if I was going to be talking about this or not. But you know that you see that, that John calls them my little children. And he uses that terms of endearment many, way, many times through the book of John. He calls them my children, my beloved, my little children. He has this relationship with them. It's a deep relationship. And it's a pastor relationship. It's a relationship that Nate and I want to have with you. Hope we get there if we're not there. I mean, that's really who we are. I mean, this is where uh, uh, Paul is writing to the the Thessalonian church about his ministry, but it's not only about ministry, it's about, I think, discipling. Notice what he says in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. He says this. He's given a, 
an apology or a, a defense for why something didn't happen and people are talking bad about him. So he says, verse 7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, out of our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Here is this walking again. It is about the life of discipleship. And you see how Paul, this tough Paul, who says things that people can misconstrue or is like a, a rhinoceros who doesn't have any skin to bleed but just is so hard-hided and just doesn't know how to be lovable, talks to these people like children. I'm, your, I'm like a nursing mother to you. I'm like a father to you, he says. Like one who knows like to be a father with his children. This is a relationship that not only he has, yes, the apostles had to the people, yes, pastors, ministers, in many different ways have that, but we are to be like that to one another. That we give our lives for one another. Nate picked out that book by Ed Welch, who was my professor in seminary, called Caring for Each Other. It wasn't a real book. It was a conversation. It wasn't a book about you read and you get all these truths from. It was a conversation talking about intentionality of caring for one another. How do you lean in? How do you intentionally lean into people's lives? You don't say, How, how's it going? Oh, great week. Thank you. Lord bless you. We love you. No, what really rotted in your life this week? What can I pray for? What do I need to be thinking about? What can I... What really is not working in your life? Can you imagine? I mean, just ask people those questions. When you go out there, I mean, we talk about having fellowship. Fellowship is not coffee and tea. Coffee is not eating food. It is part of it. But fellowship is, the word koinonia is called partnering. It's the word for partnering. It's what we do together. We do something together. And that doesn't mean having a biscuit over tea. There's nothing wrong with having a biscuit over tea, but this intentionality is so much more. Fellowship is so much more. And I was thankful for Ed Welch's book, and I was thankful that Nate brought that to read. It's a, it's, this is what discipling is. It's about digging in. It's about giving yourself. It's about self sacrifice. It's about this agape love. This is what he talks about in, in 1 John, this test of love. Do you really love one another? These guys that left don't give a hoot about you. 
but we do. And those who love the Lord Jesus will love the beloved. It's a consequence. It's a result. It is not something we try to do. It is a consequence. It is an effect of knowing Jesus. That's why being part of a family is so important. That's why we need to be here. That's why we need to be with one another as much as possible. But again, I'm not saying that we can have this relationship with everyone. But we should strive to be able to be more intentional. And you guys do great. You, know, you hear me brag about you guys all the time. But we, are we satisfied with status quo? Should we not be stirring on to even better relationships and even more intentional fellowship and koinonia and love for one another? So that's where Paul, uh, Paul not Paul, the, the uh, John writes to, to these saints. He encourages them. He gives them a purpose. The reason why he wrote this book is so that they may have fellowship with the apostles, so that they may have joy that is complete, in verse 4, so that, in verse 1 of chapter 2, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin and the more purpose statements is really kind of the big purpose statement is chapter 5 of this book, verse 13. He wants them to know. That's the buzzword. No. I write these things to you who believe in the name of Jesus, Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I want you all to walk away having that assurance that if you love Christ, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you believe in the scriptures, if you believe that Jesus existed, if you believe that he called you to be his brother and sister, then your sins have been forgiven. And the sins that you commit ongoingly, not out of want, but out of the desires of your life, not out of a life of pattern of, of sinning, but when we do sin, we have an advocate, and we have one who died for us. And it says here, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about ongoing sanctification in your life by being obedient to God. And when you're not obedient, don't, walk, don't let Satan beat you up. This is what he wants. He wants you to feel so terrible. Look at myself. I call myself a Christian. I can't do better than this? And the answer is, no, sometimes you can't do better than this. But my prayer is that you, you find this nurturing from the, from the Apostle John to the saints that we are called by God to live a life that is holy, but that we depend upon him to teach us that we have eternal life and I pray that you would pray with me as we close this message. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which you have been called. He writes in Ephesians as well, for we are, we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, I pray that as we have read these words, as we have talked about them briefly this morning, we pray that, Father, that the walk is so important because the walk tells us what we think. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right thinking leads to right living. Lord, your word tells us that over and over again, and I pray that you would give us the encouragement, give us the strength, give us the desire Give us the joy of knowing that we care about this now. Father, there was a time in our life when we could give two hoots about obedience as long as we did not get caught. But now, Lord, we care because it cost you your life, Jesus, to give us salvation. And now our life proclaims. We eat and drink the communion surface. When we do that, we it tells us that we proclaim. John tells us that there is a proclaiming going on every moment of our lives. Who are we serving? Who do we love? So Lord, thank you for giving us a heart that cares. Thank you for changing our heart. Thank you for giving us your spirit, transforming our and renewing our minds. Father, I pray if there are those out here today that don't know you and don't understand what we're talking about, that, Father, that you would prick their hearts. And for those who came discouraged today, Father, I pray that they would walk out of here encouraged. Not because of what I've said, but because of what you've taught us today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.